Good morning, everybody. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, this morning as we consider this very simple question of who Jesus is, would you not only show us the facts, not only show us the reality, but please help our hearts to accept it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's a very simple question, isn't it? Who do people say Jesus is? In some ways, it's a question that has been asked ever since Jesus first asked it. Now, you can look through history and at all sorts of different points in time, you'll hear all sorts of different answers. But I'll tell you what, we're just going to jump straight in. Come with me to Matthew 16 because Jesus asked the question. Matthew 16 and verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he said to his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? He's taken the disciples up north, they've, they've left kind of the hot spot of Jewish activity, he's, he's got a little bit of a breather from the pressure of the crowds and the leaders and he says to his disciples, who do people say? Now son of man, it, 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 it's a sort of little quaint term, right? Um, we perhaps have an equivalent, one can talk about oneself in the third person, it would be very unusual for one to do that but you know who I'm referring to, don't you? Alright, Jesus says, who do the crowds say? Jesus is. Now have a look at their replies, verse 14, they replied, well some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. You see, since the very first time this question was asked, people have had answers. Those answers seem a bit strange to us, by the way, I don't know um, if, if you were sitting there thinking to yourself, yeah, yeah, Jesus must be John the Baptist. Not quite our answers, is it? but those were normal first century answers. These were the sorts of things that the crowds were wondering. Who, who could Jesus be? I mean, they saw his power, they saw the miracles, they heard the teaching. They'd just been fed, if you remember from a couple of weeks ago. Who is this man? Now, John the Baptist seems like a strange answer, given that John the Baptist... Uh, if you, it was Jesus' cousin and they were contemporaries, so it's a little bit weird to say, you know, who is Joe? Well, he must be Adam, right? Like, that's just, you, you think, hey, what? But come back just one chapter, two chapters, sorry, to chapter 14, come back with me and have a little look just at the quirk as to why it is that they'd be saying John the Baptist. Chapter 14, verse 1, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus... This is John the Baptist, he told his servants. He has been raised from the dead. That's why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, Herod had his history with John. He'd had him executed, right? So, obviously, the guy was a bit freaked out about the thought of John the Baptist coming back. But there you go, right? The people thought, well, there couldn't possibly be two miracle workers in one generation. So, he must be John the Baptist reborn. Or Elijah, and you think, where did that come from? Well, Elijah, nine centuries earlier, right at the very end of the Old Testament, God had promised that Elijah was coming back. And so, of course, we're waiting for Elijah, right? One of the old great prophets, a man of power and might and the Spirit of God. I mean, surely this has got to be Elijah. Well, it wasn't Elijah, was it? Strangely, John the Baptist was the man who came in the spirit of Elijah. So it wasn't any of those, or Jeremiah, or any of the other prophets. Who do people say Jesus is? They had their normal answers. Now, if we went out onto the street today, 
and, uh, and we found the, the few brave souls who were braving the cold on a Sunday morning and we went and did a little bit of, uh, of canvassing. Hey, hello, excuse me, who do you say Jesus is? Um, we, we kind of did it, right? Remember the, the Jesus Is campaign that we ran a few years ago? We did a lot of that. We engaged people with this question. Who is Jesus? Fill in this sentence. Jesus is what? Now, I suspect, in fact, from what we did then, you get all sorts of different answers. I'm sure you can think of many. He was a, he was a historical figure of interest to the historians and the academics. He, he was a religious, influential religious teacher. Right? He had some good things to say. He, some might say that he's a symbol of love and peace. Right? The hippie movement, man, they were all about Jesus. He just transcends religion. He unites humanity. Maybe he's the source of inspiration or a source of morality. A cultural icon. Somebody that we put on t-shirts. Now, of course, there's religious answers to that question too, right? People from different walks of uh, different understandings about God and the world. You ask a Muslim, who is Jesus? Right? Who do people say? Well, he's one of the prophets. You ask a, uh, a Jehovah's Witness, right? they'll say, well, he's the first of God's creations. You ask someone in the New Age movement, they might well say that he's, a, he's an example of someone who has achieved higher consciousness, somebody who has arrived at where we all aim to arrive at, perhaps one who enables spiritual life. The question of who do the people say, who do others say Jesus is, it's kind of a, a nice question, to be honest, because you can answer it at arm's length. Who do people say? It, it, it's an objective question. It's a question about out there. It's a much trickier question when it becomes personal. You see, verse 15, you, Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? Now that is also a question that has resounded down the ages. And it's a question that every single one of us has an answer to. You might not have necessarily worked it out intentionally. You might not have sat down and thought hard. You might not have researched and considered. But you have an answer. Right now you have a position in regards to Jesus. Who do you think he is? You see, the question of who you think isn't so much a question about Jesus, but a question about you. To answer who do you think Jesus is reveals something about you, your beliefs, your view of the world and your view of God, your alignment or disalignment, your desires. It reveals you. It helps us understand you, which is why it's so much a harder question, isn't it? All of a sudden, it, it kind of exposes us a little bit. Well, who do people say? Well, that's broad, that's out there, that's objective, that's easy. Who do you say? That's about me. Let me give you an illustration. We, are, we had a state election recently. Uh, and so I, I could ask you the broad question, right? Who did people vote for? The answer is, well, people, by and large, voted for the Labour Party, and so now Christopher Minns is the Premier of the state, right? I mean, that's just... We, we can talk about the, the distribution of votes and which seat went to who and that's all out there, that's wonderful. But if I ask you who did you vote for, well, you would say it's none of your business, right? <laughs> it's a private ballot. I don't have to tell you that. 
Because if I told you that, it would reveal not something about the politicians, but something about me. What I think of government and the economy and migration and health reforms and all, right? It's about me. It's revealing my heart to you. Right now, as you sit, who do you say Jesus is? Now, the thing is, the answer to that question, you know, you might be able to, you might be able to put it into words or not. The scary bit is the question that comes next. Because depending on who you say Jesus is, the question that comes next is, well, what are you doing about it? You see, if you think that Jesus was a great teacher, well, do you listen to him? If you think Jesus is Lord, well, do you obey him and live his way? If you think Jesus was a liar or a fraud, well, what, uh, what do you base that on? Do you have evidence that is considered for that? Or do you just, well, it's my gut feeling. I don't like him, so. Now, Peter's answer to that question is quite spectacular. Both in how unexpected it is and in how right it is. You, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, verse 16, answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That's quite something. Now look, if you're a Christian, these are, these are words that kind of wash over and we're familiar with, the religious-y. You know, we, we just import our own meaning and move on. If, if you're not a churchgoer, then they might be words that don't really mean very much to you at all. And again, it just kind of washes over to us. Let me see if I can put it into plain language. I mean, this, this is picking up on so many ideas through the whole Bible. We could spend the rest of our time together just exploring them. But let me shortcut that for you. Peter said of Jesus, You are the king that God promised, who is going to rule over the entire world for all eternity that's quite some claim isn't it you are the king that God promised thousands of years ago to King David who was one of the greatest kings of Israel if not the greatest God promised him a son who would sit on the throne and wouldn't just rule the little bit of Palestine but as we saw in Daniel 7 rule the entire world for all eternity <laughs> who do you think Jesus is and he gave that sort of an answer the king who God gives authority to, to judge humanity, all humanity, every person ever existed, alive or dead at the time of his coming. doesn't matter. He raises them from the dead and judges them. Given authority to destroy God's enemies and given the power to save God's people. I tell you what, it's why the follow-up question to who do you think Jesus is matters so much, doesn't it? Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the King. Not, not our kind of King, by the way. 
we've got a king now, right? We had a queen until recently, we've got a king now, right? Do you know how much difference it's made to my life that we have a new king? People keep talking about it. I mean, that's about the only difference, right? Like, apparently there was a thing that just happened and he got crowned, is that, is that like, you know, I, I don't know. He's so far removed. He's so, I, I understand he has some sort of power over our politicians, should it come down. I don't even know what he, right? It's, it's not our kind of king. This is the true sovereign who has immediate direct authority, who can tell you and does tell you, no, you are mine and you will live my way or else. You think of the the, the old school kings who ruled over their vassals, their serfs, their peasants, their slaves, with total God-given authority. You are mine. It's not a view of Jesus, can I say, that comes naturally to us. Not, not because there's no evidence for it, right? I, I think the, this is the most rational explanation for the evidence that there is, that Jesus is God's King. Not because it's irrational, but because of what it means. If Jesus truly is God's King, appointed over every individual in the whole human history, to rule and to judge, that has very direct implications. It has a massive claim on each one of our lives. And I'll tell you what, we don't like it. I mean, we need intellect to understand this, but the problem is that our intellect is so often governed by our sinful hearts, such that we don't want to. To see Jesus rightly requires God to reveal him to us. Did you see in verse 17, that what Peter answered wasn't from him. Jesus responded to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. To see Jesus... I wonder... We don't have time, but I wonder if we went for a wander. And just who can we bump into? It'd be the weirdest morning ever for them. But I wonder if we went and asked, who on their right mind would say to us, Right? Who is Jesus? Oh, he's God's given ruler for eternity. He's going to judge the living and the dead. <laughs> like, God showed it to Peter. What we need is the word of God himself. That word that teaches us who Jesus is. And you know what? I mean, again, for, for Christians, this is kind of normal, but we, we shouldn't take it for granted. That word, that confession, that's the very basis of everything that Jesus is accomplishing on earth. To recognize who Jesus is, is foundational to what he is doing. We, we hit those kind of weird verses in verse 18 to 20. Let me read them again and then we'll have a little chat. Verse 18. I also say to you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. Peter in Greek is the word for rock, right? It's a pun. You are rock and on this rock I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Now, these verses are perhaps some of the most controversial in the history of Christendom. Not because they're hard to understand, but because of what people have done with them. Right? Roman Catholicism uses these verses to say, well, see, we should have a Pope. 
If that seems like a little bit of a stretch to you, it's because it is, but they say, well, Peter was established as the, the main deal in the church and the popes have been the succession since Peter. That's not what this is about. Peter himself was nothing, as we'll see in the very next couple of verses where he gets it completely wrong. It's the confession of who Jesus is that is the key to the kingdom of heaven. In fact, in chapter 18, the same thing that Jesus said of Peter, right, you bind and you loose, and he says that of all the disciples. This isn't special power that Peter has, this is the reality of what Jesus is doing in the world, by his word. You see, I can preach the gospel to you, I can tell you about Jesus, that he came and died for your sin, and then call on you to respond, will you trust Jesus? And if you do trust Jesus, then I can tell you that your sin is forgiven. Now, I haven't forgiven your sin. <laughs> this isn't power that I have. It's the gospel that gives that. I'm simply telling you the reality that is true on earth and is true in heaven. Your sin is done. Now, if I tell you the gospel, Jesus came for your sin, he died in your place, and you reject it, then I can tell you that when judgment comes, you will be condemned. Again, that's not my power. I'm not the one who's going to judge you. But the gospel itself binds and looses. It is the key to the kingdom of heaven. You hear it and respond. Now, they didn't get it, right? They did not understand this in the least back then. And hence, verse 20, he gave the disciples orders to tell no one he was the Messiah. Well, of course not. You see, Jesus is the king, they are thinking to themselves. The ruler who is eternally going to govern the whole world. What do you think Jesus is going to do next? <laughs> well, we're going to raise up an army, right? I mean, I reckon that's what they're thinking. It's on. We've been waiting for it. It's been a couple of years. Finally, the Romans are going to get their comeuppance, right? Everyone who's been a naysayer, we're going to be on top. Let's go. Well, look at what Jesus, in fact, came to do. Chapter 16 and verse 21. From then on, right, once they knew he was God's chosen king, from then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and be raised the third day. And Peter said, you're nuts. This will never happen to you. Now, Peter's right. How could it possibly happen to Jesus? You are God's eternal king. You can't go and be killed. Duh, Jesus. <laughs> no. Jesus turned and told Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You're, you're a scandal to me right now. You're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Jesus just spoke plainly to them. I tell you what, the only way to get Jesus wrong is to not listen to him. If you get Jesus wrong, it's because you just haven't stopped. And How much plainer than that do you want? What I came to do is to be rejected by the leadership of Israel. If you think God's chosen king, these are the people who would anoint him. 
These are the people who would crown him. If he's going to be the king, these are the ones who need to make him king. They're going to reject me. If he's going to be the eternal king, he needs to stay alive. They're going to kill me. That is what Jesus came to do. The king, the ruler, the judge who came to die. That's weird, isn't it? I mean, that is unexpected. How does dying accomplish what he came to do? Well, you see, you've got to remember that the king that God anoints came to save his people. And he didn't come to save them from Roman rule. He didn't come to save us from oppression, from, from whatever sort of thing or power is over us. He came to save from the true enemy, the sin that dwells within and the death that results as its consequence. That's what he came to save from. He came to die in the place of those who deserve death. He came to be judged in the place of those who deserve condemnation. He came to pay the penalty. And you know what? He came to successfully pay it. Right? It's not an instalment plan and he's still paying it off and someday we'll get there maybe. No, once for all, done. Such that the penalty paid, those greatest of enemies, sin with the sting of it, which is death, were defeated, destroyed undone completely, removed forever, such that he brings new life. It doesn't end with death, does it? Three days, he'll be raised. See, Peter should have understood this. How can a king rule forever? He's going to die. How can he rule over his people forever? They are going to die Not much of a kingdom with a dead king and dead subjects. What is that? Ruins and other people dig it up. He came to die to bring new life. Not to bring political revolution. Not anarchy and we're going to overthrow them. People today so often don't get that, do they? It's hard, it's hard to understand Jesus. I mean, the people there with him, listening to him, who'd been living with him, didn't get it. People today often don't either, and I think it's usually born out of a wrong view of self or a wrong view of God. It's easy to have a wrong view of yourself, to think that maybe you don't need saving. I'm okay, I'm, I'm good enough. I'm I'm maybe not sinless, perhaps that's pushing it a little bit too far, but I'm certainly not like, I don't really need saving, I'll be okay. That's that's the sort of the universalism view, everyone in the end is going to be in heaven. Or maybe we have a wrong view of ourselves that we don't need a saviour. I do need saving, things need to change, but I can do that, I can fix myself. I can change what I need to change and become good enough. Not any of those religious ideas that have a sense of you have to work, and it cuts across all religious ideas, really. They all have that idea that you don't need a saviour, you can do it. The gospel tells us how desperately in need of a saviour we are. 
but maybe you have a wrong view of God. I mean, some think he's not there at all, right? That's the atheist. There's no point in any of this self-improvement business because you live, you die, and the worms eat you, so who cares, right? Or maybe that God isn't actually angry at sin. He's, he's, he's kind of, well, you know, he's very permissive. God is progressive. He's, he's with us. He likes us learning and growing and changing and developing. And, and God is so loving that whatever it is that we like to do, he'll be okay with that. Or perhaps a view of God that he's not holy. And so he's just indifferent. Well, uh, maybe he cares, maybe he doesn't. It's hard to know. You end up just being scared because you never know if you're right with God or not. Now, see, all of those are human concerns. That's why the church is built on the proclamation of the gospel, because the gospel tells us we are sinful, you are sinful, I am sinful, and God is holy. He has appointed his judge that will call every one of us to account, and we desperately need a saviour. Who is Jesus? Well, God's answer is that he is his chosen king, come to rule for eternity, come to judge humanity, come to die in the place of those who need a saviour. So, what does he require of us then? You see, if Jesus came as a political figure, if Jesus came to overthrow the Roman government, it's kind of easy to know what he wants of you. Right? He wants an army. He wants you to take up your weapons and come and fight. He wants you to feed his troops. He wants you to, to work to manufacture the weaponry he needs. He wants, right, the, the, just the, the implements of war. That, that's what he needs. That's what he, it, it's easy in that sense. But he didn't come for that, did he? He came to die, to save us, to rule over us. So what, what, what does he require of us? Well, look with me at verse 24. There's three requirements he lays out. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Deny is easy, right? Say no. No, thank you. I won't have seconds of that lamb roast said no one ever, right? But you, you get the idea. Deny yourself. Say no to who you are. Take up your cross. We might well think of that as a, as a picture of, you know, embrace your suffering. Or, that's not what it is. Take up your cross means walk to your death. Your cross is execution, right? You replace it with the modern equivalent. Sit in the chair if you know the chair I'm talking about. Stand before the squad and follow me. Where has he just said he's going? To Jerusalem, to suffer and die and be raised. What does Jesus require of us? Everything. He requires you. He's not a distant sovereign who's happy for you to just run off and be you. He's the Lord God Almighty to whom you belong if you are His. 
You've got to give yourself up. Give up your sense of self-preservation. <laughs> give up your sense that you can do it on your own. Give up your sense that you are master of your own destiny. That you are God in your life. That you get to choose who you want to be and what you want to do. Give it up. And instead follow him. But I'll tell you what, he gives us some quite powerful and compelling reasons for it. Three reasons. Have a look at verse 25. Here's reason number one. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. That's a bit back to front, isn't it? You can spend the rest of however many years you've got on earth pursuing whatever it is that you want in an attempt to save your life. The hedonism that you think will bring you pleasure, the good works you think will get you to heaven, the ambivalence of Australian culture, eh, whatever. The long weekends, one after the other, doing the things that you... Whatever it is, you can pursue it. You can spend your life trying to build the perfect family or the empire or the wealth or the, whatever it might be. You spend your life doing that and you're going to get to the end of it and you will lose it all. Now, instead, the second reason, he says, whoever loses his life because of me will find it. Give it up. He's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You will find the desires of your heart as God transforms them. You will find an eternity Blessed with him forever. Verse 26, he points it out for us. What, what will it benefit someone to gain the whole world yet lose his life? I mean, this is the offer being made to you today by this Jesus. You can pursue anything and you can get it. You might well become the Jeff Bezos, the Elon Musk, the, the, the Jeff Bezos recently built the second largest yacht in the world. It was so big that they had to deconstruct a historic bridge to get it out of the shipping yard because they didn't realise that it was locked in. Do you know what he realised? That he forgot to put a helipad on it. So do you know what he did? He bought another yacht to go alongside it with a helipad. I kid, this is like, I kid you not, right? An 80-crew yacht to travel alongside his however many... Do you think how many millions of dollars it costs every year? Because he forgot to put a helipad on the first one. So he said, ah, whatever, just get another one. You might achieve that. And what's the point if you lose your life? If your eternity is spent condemned? Because you see, here's the third reason... Look at verse 27. The Son of Man, this one with all authority and power, is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father and he will reward each according to what he has done. Which sounds lovely and is terrifying. Because if you've spent your life running from God, then what reward will you receive? In fact, Jesus says, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The day of judgment has begun. We are on borrowed time. God's been patient. It's a day that's tempered 
by the offer of salvation, but it ends at any minute. Now, can I quickly, by way of application, speak to two different groups of people? First, if you're a Christian, who is Jesus? Who, who do you say Jesus is? Now, I really hope that you, like Peter, can say, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He, he is my Lord. I know that He is God's King. I know that He rules because I have given Him my life. That, that's what it means to become a Christian. Who this is, is no longer mine, it's His. I hope that that's what you can say. That you're living His agenda, not your own. That you have taken the keys to the kingdom of heaven, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Himself, and you are busily unlocking doors. <laughs> if I can push the metaphor without it getting too weird. You're busily teaching others about Jesus. You love your brothers and sisters in Christ by sharing Jesus with them. You love the lost around you by sharing Jesus with them. Are you busy with God's concerns or the concerns of men? I think it's easy to turn into a Peter. It's easy to start thinking, well, what things around me in my life can Jesus do for me? What do I expect him to achieve? Rather than looking to him. But I tell you what, if Jesus is your Lord, then I hope that you rejoice that he is your saviour. That you live a life of joy, of worship, of delight. That you are a worshipper in spirit and truth. That you are somebody who is thankful. I mean, what a saviour we have. The king who died in our place. The son of the living God who shed his blood that we might have redemption. I hope that you live the life of delighted worship. And can I speak to you for a minute, if you still are unsure or if the answer to that question, who is Jesus, hasn't quite clicked with what we've spoken about today, come, <laughs> come to him. Give up your life. It's, it's absolutely worth it. I know you came last night and we heard Peter talking about the the worth of it it's costly by the way don't make the decision lightly it's costly it's everything it's everything but it is so worth it you know in, in the bible when people wanted to come to christ they, they got baptized right that symbol of, of, of getting buried you, you, you get killed and you come to new life again Come to Jesus. Make the decision today. We're not set up to do a baptism. I'm not inviting you to come and do that. But I'm inviting you to take a step, to make a commitment, to decide, to choose. Give your life to Him. I'll tell you what, it's the best decision you could ever make. Ask anyone. There you go, I'll, I'll, I'll risk it. Ask a single Christian here today. What do you think about this decision of giving your life to Jesus? Best decision you can ever make. The reward that he offers is incomparable. Life eternal with him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. Your son, your king, sacrificed in our place. Ruling now, reigning now, and being patient before the judgment comes. Our oh, Father, we... We love you and we love Jesus. We're so grateful for him. 
We rejoice in the salvation you have won and the life you have given us. Father, save those, bring, those, bring them home who aren't yet followers of Jesus and teach us all to bow the knee in wonder and in delight.